Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 169, The History of Ukraine, Part 2. Last time, we covered the early years of the lands that were to become the country known as Ukraine. Today, we pick things up before one of the major events of Ukrainian history known as the Ruin. But before we get into that, I just want to apologize to those of, of you who listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you know, in kind of real time. I've been off for a little while, about five, six weeks. Life just happens, and lots of things came on my plate, and so I wanted to get them out of the way before I got back into the uh, podcast series. And then I got a pretty bad cold, and it made my voice at times sound like a 14-year-old adolescent boy whose voice is changing, and then it switched over to a raspier version of Joe Cocker. But now I'm doing better and ready to get going. We're now in the early 1600s, and the lands of Ukraine were being split apart by various factions, led by the Poles, Lithuanians, and Russians, and some talk amongst the Swedes. Added to this, we have the most powerful remnant of the Golden Horde, the Crimean Tatars, raiding the countryside, taking slaves with them to sell in the Ottoman Empire. The number of slaves they captured was by no means an inconsequential amount. It has been estimated that close to one million people were taken. This led to great fear throughout the land, all the way up to Moscow, which had been destroyed by the Tatars as late as 1571. While the land around Ukraine was highly fertile, it was also a dangerous place to live, so few would take the risk. The setup for the time of the ruin has the various groups vying for power. Zaporozhian Cossacks in the region were the main internal power, but for many years they were not really unified enough to present a threat to any of the other powers that be. Around 1648, an uprising against the Poles by the Cossacks was led by Bodan Kemelinsky and Pedro Doroshenko. The new hetman, or head of the Cossacks, Kemelnitsky, was a charismatic man and very able leader. At first, he rose up against the Poles with the Crimean Tatars as his allies. At the battle fought from June 28th to the 30th of, 19, of 1651, the Cossacks and the Tatars faced the smaller yet better trained and supplied army of Poles. Faced with the tough conditions, the Tatars abandoned their former allies, even going so far as to take Kamelnitsky as a hostage. Released a short while after the Polish victory, the Cossacks were forced to sign a treaty which had quite harsh terms. Because of it, they looked eastward toward Moscow as a new ally. The one thing that the Cossacks and the Russians had in common at this time was a religion, orthodoxy. Given that the Poles were Catholic and the Tatars were Muslim, this would seem to be a natural alliance. But the Russians were not aiding the Cossacks because of their co-religious beliefs. They were looking to expand their territories and find a way to destroy their enemies to the south, the Crimean Tatars. Unfortunately for both Russia and Ukraine, this was not to be accomplished until 1783. The Tsar at the time in Russia was Alexis, who was dealing with a whole host of problems, most of them financial, coming out of the time of troubles which ended during the reign of his father, Michael. In 1654, Hetman Kemelnitsky signs the Treaty of Pereyaslav, with the Russians making them a protectorate. 
1657, Bodan Kamelnitsky died without a clear succession plan. His young son, Yuri, was installed as the new hetman, but he was only 17. He was also a pretty poor leader and made deals with the Poles and then the Russians and then the Tatars. And it seemed like depending on which way the wind blew is where he's, his loyalties laid. After the disastrous deal with the Crimeans, he gave up his leadership role and retired to a monastery in 1662. But he came back in 1672, but failing yet again, he went into a Greek monastery only to be pulled out once again by the Ottomans to serve as the figurehead leader of the Cossacks in the Russo-Turkish War of 1676-81. to Back to the ruin. The players who were to ravage the region included the Russians, Poles, Tatars, and Turks, along with internal strife between the richer and the poorer Cossacks, with the lowly peasants of the region being caught in between all of the combatants. It is estimated that hundreds of thousands of people died during the 30-year period of the ruin. In the end, the Russians and the Poles divided the land of Ukraine between them with the signing of, and this is a great name, quote, Eternal Peace Treaty of 1686. Now, the reason for the signing of the treaty between two bitter enemies was the threat from the Ottoman Empire in Ukraine. What it did was to open the door for a new enemy to enter the picture, the Swedes. Now, before the Swedes jumped into the picture, we have yet another Russo-Turkish War, this time stretching from 1686 to 1700. Allies of the Russians and Poles included the Holy Roman Empire and Venice. They were all fighting against the continued expansionist aggression of the Crimean Tatars and the Ottoman Empire. The new hetman of the Zaporozhian Cossacks was a man whose name you should be familiar with. Of course, anybody who remembers the Peter the Great series should remember him. Ivan Mezpa. In 1700, the Great Northern War began, led by two charismatic leaders, Peter the Great and Charles XII. At first, the Cossacks stood by the side of the Russians. But when things began to look dicey, they decided to switch sides and join forces with the Swedes, which, as you might guess, was a very bad thing to do. When the Russians came up with a decisive victory at the Battle of Poltava, Charles and Mespa were forced to flee into Ottoman territory. Tsar Peter knew he could no longer trust the Hetmanate and any thought of an independent Ukraine. But in that era, in that time, the mistrust, in 1710, the constitution written of by Pilip Orlik, also known as the Pacts and Constitutions of Rights and Freedoms of the Zaporozhian Host, became one of the first state constitutions in Europe. Now, many believe that Montesquieu's spirit of laws was first, but not so. Hetman Pilip Orlik predated it by some 38 years, something that every person of Ukrainian descent should be proud of. The Spirit of Laws is one of the documents that inspired the founding fathers of the United States Constitution. The fact that the Orlik Constitution was far earlier than the Spirit of Laws is lost to many, and I think that's a tragedy, and I hope that in my small part I'm making amends. Now, over the next hundred years or so, Ukrainian territory was taken away from Poland and incorporated into Russia and Austria, 
with Russia getting the majority of the land. This was also the time when Poland began to be taken apart and absorbed by the same two countries. The Russians, according to some historians, were to be far more oppressive toward their Ukrainian brethren than the Poles were. While the Polish rulers tried to split the Orthodox Church by creating a Unite Church in 1596, which was kind of Orthodox in nature but followed the Pope, the Russians suppressed the people and over the years began a campaign of Russification, which saw its zenith under the rule of Alexander III. Throughout the 18th century and into the 19th, there were constant uprisings against the Poles and especially the Jews in Ukraine. There were numerous clashes and, and actual fistfights between the priests and parishioners of the Uniate and Orthodox churches. In 1783, as we mentioned before, Russia finally annexed Crimea. It was settled by both Russians and Ukrainians, with some Crimean Tatars staying put. Catherine the Great, though, began to invite Germans to settle into Ukrainian territory, as well as Crimea. Tens of thousands of German immigrants began to stream into the rich agricultural lands. By the 19th century, Ukraine was a backwards agricultural region that was for the most part looked down upon by the Russian and Austrian governments. While Ukrainians did serve in the Russian government, their people saw little aid coming from St. Petersburg. It was, of course, ravaged by the invasion of Napoleon in 1812. The scorched land policy of Kutuzov proved devastating to Ukraine and its people. It would be many years before they fully recovered from that war. Within the Austrian-controlled region of Ukraine, there were more nationalistic groups than in the Russian area, as the Habsburgs were far more lenient than were the Romanov Tsars. When World War I came about, as you might imagine, some Ukrainians fought on the side of the Austrians, around 250,000, while 3.4 million fought on the side of the Russians. As you might imagine, this split is part of the bad blood between Ukrainians today. There was a Ukrainian legion that was formed by the Austro-Hungarians to fight the Russians, and this legion continued on after the war against the Bolsheviks, which was in part spurred on by a nationalistic movement for a free Ukraine. After the brief Polish-Ukrainian War, which was fought between 1918 and 19, the Poles took control of western Ukraine, which was agreed upon with the Peace of Riga. Fighting continued throughout Ukraine during the Russian Civil War, with hundreds of thousands dying. In the immediate aftermath, there was the first of two major famines to hit the region, the Famine of 1921. As the Soviets began to take over the country, Ukraine was to suffer greatly due to the process of collectivization. Stalin believed that the USSR had to increase its rate of industrialization to match the rest of the world, and that agricultural areas like Ukraine were a hindrance to this goal. Many of the farmers resisted collectivization, and those that did were met with harsh treatment. Not only were they deported, but whatever food they did grow was to be turned over to the authorities. Not a bite was to be kept. If they were found to even save a rotted piece of food, they could be shot, tortured, or sent to Siberia. Many were. Now, the starvation that occurred in the 1930s was known as the Great Famine, or the Holomodor. There is a debate among scholars about whether this can be considered a genocide 
or not, but I side with those that believe it was. Documentation showed that Stalin and his henchmen had little regard for the suffering of the population of Ukraine, as they believed that many were anti-Bolshevik and that their deaths would actually bring greater stability to the Soviet Union. During the two years of the Holomodor, 1932-33, it has been estimated that between 3 and 7.5 million people died because of the famine in Ukraine, with tens of millions more suffering its effects. If you look this up online, go to Wikipedia, places like that, you see the pictures of people just lying on the ground, dead, children, looking like stick figures, looking like they came out of a, a German concentration camp. This punishment of peasants was a foreshadow to another genocidal event, the Great Terror of 1937-38. through 38. The purge of Communist Party members and anyone suspected of being against Stalin was also known as the Yezhov Shishina, after NKVD head Nikolai Yezhov. The focus of much of the Great Terror in Ukraine were the Kulaks, or the supposedly rich peasants. They were summarily rounded up, usually because someone ratted them out, with many being executed on the spot, and others being put in rail cars and sent to Siberia. Millions yet again suffered. Then came the beginning of World War II in 1939, where the peace agreement between the Nazis and Soviet Union divided Poland up and gave back the Ukrainian lands to the USSR. Of course, on June 22, 1941, we know what happened. The Nazis decided to invade the Soviet Union, and where did they march straight through? Through Ukraine. As it was with the fighting in World War I, Western Ukrainians joined with the Germans to fight against the Communists, although the majority sided with the USSR. But Hitler had little to no respect for the Ukrainian people and treated them with brutality whether they were on his side or not. This caused many to switch sides and a large partisan movement developed. This movement was in part due to a depopulation program throughout Ukraine to prepare for German resettlement. The war caused somewhere between 5 to 8 million people to die in Ukraine, with an additional 1.4 million Ukrainian troops to fall. When you add the deaths from World War I, the famine of 1921, the Holomodor, and the great terror to this, you come to the horrible realization that over 15 million, and maybe as many as 35 million Ukrainians died, in less than 30 years from 1917 to 1945. In post-World War II Ukraine, the rebuilding process was truly daunting. Over 28,000 villages and 700 cities were destroyed. Then yet another famine was to strike in 1946 and 47. While not as devastating as the previous two famines, it still affected millions. During the times of the Tsars, especially Alexander III, the Russification of Ukraine was carried out. During Stalin's post-war period, a Sovietization program, very similar to the Tsars' ideas, were carried out. Forced deportations of ethnic Germans, 450,000 by some estimates, many of whom came over during the reign of Catherine the Great, were made to leave, as were over 200,000 Crimean Tatars. Luckily for the Ukrainian people, Joseph Stalin died in 1953, and Nikita Khrushchev became the new head of the USSR.
1938, Nikita was the first secretary of the Communist Party of the Ukrainian SSR. He had a special spot in his heart for the people, so when he took over control of the Soviet Union, he eased the purges and deportations. In 1954, during the 300th anniversary of the Treaty of Pereyaslav, one where the Cossacks and Russians joined together loosely, Khrushchev transferred the Crimea from the Russian SFSR to the Ukrainian SSR. Now, this transfer has been considered by some in Russia today as being illegal, although I find that a little hard of a position to take. But nonetheless, this is the one time that Crimea became part of Ukraine. Now, because of the deportations during Stalin's era and the repopulation of the region by ethnic Russians, there were quite a few Crimeans who objected to staying within an independent Ukraine. A Ukrainian independence achieved in 1991 was the first real time in their history that they were their own country. There was a short period after World War I where an independent Ukraine was declared, but that was incredibly short-lived. What we have today is a tense region due to the centuries of meddling by the czars, the Soviet leadership, Poland, Austria, Sweden, and others. The overwhelming majority of Ukrainians believe in the complete independence of their country, especially staying independent of Russia, but many see their eastern neighbor as a longtime friend and ally. There is, of course, an element that wants things to go back to the old days. They believe that Ukraine and Russia are inexorably tied together from the days of Kiev and Rurik all the way to the Soviet Union, a period of over 1,000 years. Where the history of Ukraine goes from here is anyone's guess. What we do know is that the Ukrainian people are their own masters and their own people, just as the Russians are. Let's hope that the tension within their country ends peacefully, as the Ukrainians, as you've heard, have suffered way, way too much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time as we start heading towards the end of the podcast with a look back at all of the Russian rulers that we covered in the past. I'll be taking some time off to prepare for the next series, coming back in January. The way I'm going to restructure things is I'm going to start with Vladimir Putin and march back in time, all the way back to our old pal Rurik. So now, as always, Tasvidanya is Spasiva Bolshoya.